This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. What would the U.S. response look like if Joe Biden was president? He gave some insight into his plans, which include a mask mandate and testing overhaul. Is that realistic? Is it too little too late? We'll ask some questions. Now, we're all learning more about this virus, but there's still so much left to figure out. We'll look into what we are doing right, what we're not, and what else we need to know. A lot of people struggling with debt because of all this. We'll also look at how you can save your credit score. Well, people are trying to salvage their credit scores and keep from sinking into debt. Wall Street's doing just fine. Stock market has soared to record levels this week. Why the disconnect? We start, though, with Joe Biden and his pandemic plans. Dr. Lee Riling, Division Head of Infectious Diseases, Vaccinology at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. You know, the U.S. is a huge country, right? And so trying to uh, get uh, everybody in all these different states, even the governors, the state leadership, to really comply with something like this is going to be like herding cats. But, but it's, it's more of a symbolism. You know, if you have a national policy on something like this, a universal mask mandate, I think more people will comply. And we just need at least 75%, maybe 80% of the U.S. to uh, wear masks. You know, those, those others, it's just not going to be possible to, you know, uh, get them to do what, uh, <laughs> what we want them to do. And so if we have some national policy on this issue, I think uh, we can really uh, – start making a dent in this uh, epidemic that we're seeing. This should have been done, in fact, uh, back in March. Yeah, and that was one of uh, his points, saying all of these things should have been worked on before. Let's move on to the testing. Uh, rapid tests is what he's calling for, easier to do, surveillance, that kind of thing. Uh, some of this would probably come by the time either he's in office or President Trump gets a second term anyways, right? Because it's being worked on now. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I think, you know, <laughs> this so-called rapid tests, you know, the kind of tests you can do at home, is probably going to be more challenging, and I seriously doubt that it's going to be really ready, even by the time the next president starts uh, his term. Uh, you know, a test like this is often uh, uh, less sensitive than some of the tests that we now have, and, and that's going to also create some problems, you know, trying to rely on such a test to make any sort of decisions. And and as far as tests are concerned, you know, I think we're overstressing testing as though that's going to somehow prevent uh, uh, continued transmission. You know, we've done lots of testing in this country, and, you know, yet we still have, have this problem. Uh, you know, we still have the worst uh, COVID-19 problem in the world. And so I think we need to do something more than just emphasizing testing. Um, well, you, you, you're, you, yeah, but you're, you're, you just raised a really good point. Uh, yeah, we do have, you know, not a lot of people, not everybody wears masks, but enough people are now wearing masks. And no, we don't have a great, you know, world class uh, contact tracing, but we do have better than we did before. Yet the right. infection rates are going up and up and up and up. So what is it that if we get a different president, let's say Joe Biden in uh, January 20th, what is it that a president of the United States could do that would change that? What is it that needs to change to bring the infection rate down? Right. It's very simple. You just have to serve as a good example. 
You know, if you look at all the other countries, it's really their national leadership ex- setting examples that really contributed to uh, the uh, uh, control of the epidemic. And we just have not had that kind of leadership. A simple example, you know, you saw the story about women governors, the states that have women governors, you know, they're doing very well in terms of the number of deaths, deaths, and it's because of the leadership. Women <laughs> leaders tend to be more empathetic towards what's going on, whereas uh, some of our male uh, governors uh, care more about uh, their image of what they look like, and if they show empathy, it looks weak, and that's what they're more worried about than trying to really solve this problem. And so uh, setting an example is probably the most important uh, uh, mechanism to really attack this, uh, this epidemic. Dr. Lee Riley heads the Division of Infectious Diseases, Vaccinology, UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Our understanding of this virus is changing quickly, and so are our responses to it. We shut everything down and then open things up again, only to shut them down again because of another surge in cases. That makes people wonder what progress has really been made in trying to control the virus. Brad Pollock is chair of the Department of Public Health Sciences at UC Davis Health. He talks to KCBS's Stan Bunger in San Francisco about if and how we can stop this thing. The pandemic is not static, so uh, the epidemic uh, moves up and down. Um, right now, if you looked at uh, California as a whole, we've kind of leveled off from this last surge that we, uh, we started probably about six weeks ago. Um, and so, and hopefully we'll get those, those curves kind of turned around where we're decreasing in the occurrence of new disease. Um, but, uh, you know, if you had asked me three months ago where we were, where we were at, uh, things were looking quite good. This was after we instituted the shelter in place orders. And, uh, we really, uh, as I said, bent the curve significantly. Uh, unfortunately, um, we had, uh, changes in behavior, which, uh, which led to the, the surge that we're trying to get through right now. So it does uh, wax and wane, as they say, but um, we, we, we're in serious conditions right now. We have uh, a, a significant amount of disease. Here's the question. I feel like people might have a better grasp of what they should and shouldn't do if we had better information about exactly where and how people were getting infected. Do we have that information? Could we get it? Um, yeah, great question. And, you know, uh, this, was a, this is called a novel virus for a reason. We had never seen this virus. It was a new virus. And, you know, so we, we try to draw on history of exposure to other emerging infectious diseases to, to drive our knowledge and behavior. And unfortunately, we, we didn't have a lot of information. This coronavirus doesn't act like the other coronaviruses. So uh, to some extent, if you go back five months ago, people were doing things and believing things uh, without having a lot of evidence for, for these, these practices. And over the, the last five months, we've gathered a lot of new knowledge, a lot of new information, which is helping us guide how we handle the epidemic. So it's not a static issue. Our, our behaviors are, should be dictated by um, policies. Policies should be sort of created based on evidence, scientific evidence. And again, we didn't have any at the beginning of the epidemic. It's emerging now. And, you know, every day there's another set of reports that come out that give us more information about how this particular virus is affecting the population and, of course, uh, how we might be able to, to deal with it more directly. I mean, I've been asked this question many times off the air, so let me ask it to you sort of as a proxy for all the people who have asked me, and that is, is, is there information at the local level that would say there were cases from that bar or that supermarket or that basketball court that might lead people to have some closer understanding of, of you know, the reality of where the transmission is occurring? Or is, are there yeah. privacy issues around that? You know, how, how do we handle that sort of thing? 
Yeah, no, I mean, there's official ways of handling that, but but without without a doubt, the contact tracing that has been done officially, and, and that is, uh, contact tracing is not a minor thing here. This is something that the California Department of Public Health is uh, charged with, and, and indeed some of that responsibility, a lot of the responsibility to the local county health authorities. These are usually county health departments. So, so uh, if the information about contacts done through contact tracing has, in fact, led us to understand a lot more about where the virus is most likely to be spread. And, and that's what I was saying. If you look over the last surge here, we saw emerging evidence, you know, probably a month ago that it was social gatherings. Uh, and we're getting reports now of uh, folks that were at parties. We've had a number of fraternity parties around the country where, uh, and I'll just give you one example, about three weeks ago, University of Washington had an outbreak that occurred uh, that was linked back through contact tracing to one fraternity party where 121 plus people were infected. So, so in fact, the contact tracing does provide uh, information about where to look at where the spread's occurring. Um, and, you know, this is true also, uh, you know, anecdotally, if you look around the country, that you'd see you know, there, there may have been some spread at bars and other places like this. But, but again, you know, we use contact tracing to help inform where we concentrate our public health efforts to stop the, the transmission. Next question. My family's in New Zealand and the U.K. both uh, reinstituted strict quarantine when there were relatively few new cases. It would appear the most successful means of control was New Zealand's go-early-go-hard policy. Recurrence in New Zealand of four cases, now around 100, and really tight quarantine measures that seem to be effective. It would seem that New Zealand has adopted a best practice. Why would that not be the standard to adopt in the U.S. and internationally? Well, those those of us in public health would love to do that. <laughs> Believe me, um, I, I think uh, New Zealand has been held up as an incredible example, uh, and I think what they've done makes a lot of sense. It's just very difficult. We are a much larger country. We're much more diverse, and we're clearly spread out over a larger geography. So um, it is it is more challenging to do that here. And just by way of history, if you think back to the very beginning of this epidemic, you know the. At that point, the the, uh, the desire was to contain the uh, the epidemic, um, and and so you know that was if we had been able to do this in January and February, it's possible we wouldn't have had this epidemic. Um, the problem again is at that time we this is a novel virus. We did not have the testing infrastructure in place to be able to identify people that were infected and could could, could spread the disease to other folks. So again, it's a little bit of a function of what capacity we have at the beginning. So this containment issue works really well at the beginning of an epidemic. Uh, then you'll, you'll remember that we had to switch over to what they call mitigation, which is essentially, well, we know we're not going to actually be able to eliminate it through those containment measures. So now we switch to trying to lower the impact and lower the spread. But that's different than the containment issue. And just one last thing here is as we move to the tail end of the epidemic, which we hope will happen, um, and probably with the advent of uh, vaccination, widespread vaccination, um, you'll, you'll start moving then to a containment strategy again. So New Zealand, again, is a great example. It's, a, it's, a, it's an island, it's two islands, actually, uh, where they can control the ebb and flow of people into uh, to their country a little bit more easily, um, but it's, it's very small. And, but nonetheless, what they've done is, is terrific. And, uh, you know, those kinds of measures could, could, uh, 
be more effective here in the U.S. as well. But it's it's very challenging to do that in a very large, diverse country. All right, listen, thanks for taking the time with us. We've uh, taken up enough of yours. We'll let you get back to work. We appreciate it. We're almost six months into the pandemic here in the U.S., and people are still struggling to pay bills, credit card debt, that sort of thing. The problem could get even worse the longer people remain out of work. Not making credit card payments will start to hurt people's credit scores, of course. And that's when the real financial problems begin. Credit card expert and consumer finance analyst Beverly Harzog with U.S. News and World Reports talked to John Little from KRLD in Dallas about dealing with debt and credit. We did recently did a survey on loan literacy, and we found out that 55% don't know the impact of a missed payment. And just one missed payment can make your score just plummet, especially if you have a high score. Right now, if you can maintain a high credit score, that's going to help you if you have an emergency. Say you need an emergency loan, a personal loan. The higher your score, the lower interest you're going to pay. The lower the interest, the less debt you're going to be taking on. So, you know, I just want people to know that you do have options. Now, let's say you think you're going to miss a payment. Call your lender and talk to your lender about it. Let them know your situation. I always recommend writing down a couple of bullet points before you make that phone call so you sound very organized, you know, and just state your case. Honestly, don't embellish just state your case and also have an idea of when you might be able to make those payments again. I am seeing credit card issuers uh, in particular giving some pretty good hardship programs for people. You know, it's going to be different with different issuers. But whether it's a credit card issuer or your mortgage or a loan payment, call the lender. Okay, you really have a little more power than you know in this situation and do what you can to protect your credit score. Now, what about payday loans? A lot of us have been cautioned uh, against them, but does everybody know that payday loans are not the way to go? something I've talked about frequently because right now people might be tempted to get a payday loan. It's advertised as a short-term loan. Well, the good news here is that 57% in our survey say that a payday loan isn't a smart move, but a good 37% didn't know that that was probably a bad idea, and about 3% thought it was a good idea even if you had to renew it. And I'll just tell you real quickly how this works. Okay, you get a payday loan, and that loan is supposed to help you get to your payday when you pay off that loan. But if all of the same, uh, if the same situation uh, that you're in, your, your cash flow, if it has not changed in some way, you're going to have the same problem the next month. So this is how people get into a cycle of debt. They get one payday loan. They can't pay it back. They have to get another payday loan. And, John, some of these loans, they can average around 300 400% interest rate. So I always suggest make that a, <laughs> a last choice, okay? Uh, call your lender and see what they can do to help you before you ever turn to a payday loan. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. How's that for a literary reference? (laughs) But it seems to be true. Well, millions of people are struggling right now with job loss, debt, despair even. Those on Wall Street and big business CEOs, they are doing better than ever. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ hit record highs this week. How can so many people struggle and at the same time see big business thrive? KYW's Matt Leon in Philadelphia got some answers uh, from a friend of the podcast, Villanova business professor David Fiorenza. And we could take a look at the Dow Jones. It's 30 stocks. You take a look at that, and most of those stocks are things like Apple, Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble. They're companies that are doing very well. Tech, 
consumer goods, uh, also things that we buy every day or every week from Q-tips to Kleenexes. So those companies are doing very well. And other companies as well, are, are pharmaceuticals, are doing well. But you look at the other stocks, there's a whole host of stocks at the NASDAQ um, and other S&P that maybe are not doing as well, even though we're back to where we were in January on a macro level. But if you took a, take a look at individual stocks, a lot of them are still struggling. And you mentioned Apple. Apple is America's first $2 trillion company. Uh, that's a number I really can't even get my head around, that one company has that type of worth. Right. And and most of it is, is in the tech area. Most of it, it has to do with Apple iTunes and music and all the products that Apple has. It's not all from the retail stores either. A lot of it is the other things that Apple is involved in. Now, there are some pauses that could come out of it. It's if you have retirement money uh, from a mutual fund company, there's probably a little bit of Apple stock in there. Or, or if you don't even own stock in Apple, maybe some of your other investments that you have at mutual funds that are non-retirement may have some Apple stock in there. But it's only going to be at the most 5%. So you're going to have a little bit of a gain there, but you're not going to be gaining as if you were to own the stock itself. So we talk about how well the stock market's doing. We talk about how disappointing and depressing the unemployment numbers are. We get a lot of other indicators that are kind of all over the map. When you put it all together, as an economist, how would you rate the American economy right now? Is it really in trouble? Is it struggling? Is it doing better than should be expected given the the situation how would you look at our overall economic picture right that's a great question i always hope for the best and expect the worst uh, i would say we're at a mid-level b right now at this point sure people have told me that places like walmart and target and costco their stock is doing well their sales are up but i say that's not hometown america in other words, the small mom and pop shops, the antique stores, the little diners, the restaurants, and all the other consignment shops and the places that we love to shop in throughout the summer and the winter months where they have all kinds of events. To me, that makes up a large portion of our economy is the small businesses, employees 50 and less. And that's where we are still hurting a lot in that area throughout the United States. There's been a lot of news surrounding the post office, and most of it has talked about the importance of the election and the political side. But I wanted to talk about it from an economic standpoint. A lot of commerce, a lot of business gets done through the U.S. Postal Service. And given the unevenness of our economy, if there are slowdowns here, this could be an economic hit, no? It could be. Um, and the post office has always had issues and problems because it's a quasi-government agency, which means they don't have to make a profit. They're not Federal Express. They're not UPS. And the, the post office also has to be in almost every little town throughout the United States. You wouldn't do that business model if you were a for-profit industry, such as Federal Express. So with that being said, the post office continues to struggle because of things such as technology, the Internet. I asked my class the other day, I said, how many people sent a birthday card within the last year? I got no response. I was the only person who raised my hand saying that I used a first-class stamp to do that compared to the Internet. Uh, it's, it's really cut down on the use of the post office. They struggle, uh, but by law, they have to deliver to us first-class mail. So this struggle, I think, will go on beyond the election. Colleges have begun for the fall in many places. I know you've had a handful of classes. Uh, I've read some things about 
steep drops in enrollment, which makes a lot of sense. Maybe people taking a year off or going somewhere close to as a, as a freshman until things uh, settle down. But how concerned should higher ed be, you know, a significant drop in enrollment? Because a lot of places were struggling even before the pandemic, no? That's right. They were. Uh, like most industries uh, that are that are in the United States, I always say the strong survive and the weak will not survive. Um, I don't know if we'll see some mergers of smaller universities in the tri-state area. I don't know if if you'll see all other kinds of things being being put on the table, such as a uh, tuition freeze, or will there be other programs and other majors that may be dropped from uh, from lower enrollment. So the, I think lots of universities, board of trustees are, are taking a look at everything at the at their universities and they're taking a, a really strong strong serious look into the future for even next year because next year may not be what we would call a normal year if everything is canceled are you really missing out apparently that answer is yes mental health experts say lots of people are still dealing with fear of missing out or fomo for short it's just that fomo is a little different now Instead of getting anxious or upset when people see pictures of someone's dream vacation or how they scored front row seats to a hot concert, one neuropsychologist says people are now jealous of others making sourdough starters or or they see others hiking in the woods with their family and feel bad because they're sitting on the couch doing nothing. Another mental health expert says you can combat FOMO by being more active on social media, by interacting with people rather than just scrolling passively. But, you know, that doesn't work because I remember uh, doing kind of sort of a Zoom thing. I hate Zoom things, but, <laughs> but I did a Zoom thing, and I kept staring at it, and there was one person on Zoom, and they had a really kind of cool-looking, really expensive bicycle in the background, and I thought, I really want that. Bicycle. I want to ride that. Bike. Yeah, I want that bicycle. Yeah. So it didn't make me feel. Didn't better. make you feel good. No. I, well, I was having this discussion with somebody the other day. You know, everybody on Instagram posts all their, you know, look how fit I am pictures. I'm on the beach, and yeah. well, no, they're just using their back catalog. Was you know? that it? <laughs> That's this is cheated. from like two years yeah. ago. <laughs> they took a lot then in case of pandemic. Now they weigh 60 pounds. Now everyone's on the couch <laughs> yeah. eating Cheetos. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. Either they've wasted away to nothing or they're 900 pounds. We figured it out. All right. Thanks for listening. We hope you're doing well. Listen to us on the radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And don't think you're you're missing out on anything that we're doing because our lives, we're not doing anything. Not Trust a single us. thing.